0: After dinner, we had a couple of drinks around the fire after dinner with some, some of our guests, and I was, I was merely walking down the boardwalk back to my room, and there were four lionesses walking down the boardwalk. And it was like a six-foot jump to get off the boardwalk, so I wasn't really keen to jump off the boardwalk. And the lionesses certainly didn't look like they were about to jump off the boardwalk.
1: This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Agrimis, and in this final episode of Season 1, you'll hear from Keith Vincent about spending 200 plus days a year in the African bush, building some of the most unique wildlife experiences on Earth, and operating the largest luxury safari company in Africa. For those of us who spend most of our time living and working in big cities, it's hard to imagine the kinds of adventures that have defined Keith Vincent's life. He survived several aircraft crashes, been chased by nearly every animal you can think of, and even spent a night in the maximum security prison in Lusaka, Zambia, which he says, quote, is not a cool place. Keith is the CEO of Wilderness Safaris, which operates in seven different African countries and directly employs about 2,800 people. Their camps, frequented by celebrities and guests of the highest end tour operators in the world, Are the result of a lifetime's worth of his experiences living and working in the bush while keith credits several of the early hunters and adventurers as he calls them in our interview with paving the path that opened up the back ends of africa to the tourism that takes place there today it's fair to say he and his team have done some major restoration to those paths i've been fortunate enough to travel with him several times and am genuinely excited for you to have the opportunity to hear some of the same insane stories that i've heard many of which left my chin on the floor including the one when he learned what the jesus nut was on a helicopter
0: in 1982, there was a, a massive drought in southern Zimbabwe, and we were flying along in a helicopter capturing s- sable to be able to put them in a corral to be able to feed them in order for them to survive the drought. When the nut that holds the rotor blades on the helicopter is sheared off, where obviously uh, we, 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 this giant frisbee left the helicopter and we promptly hit the ground <laughs> quite, quite <laughs> solidly thereafter. Um, and thereafter you, you sort of are fully aware of what, what more commonly called in the helicopter world, the Jesus that,
1: <laughs> which is what holds the rotor blades on.
0: That's correct. Yeah.
1: You don't want to lose that, yeah. man. You've had a lifetime of experiences, many lifetimes of experiences, uh, living, living in the bush. I mean, you've spent your whole life to some degree, uh, living and working there. Um, I wonder if you could point to a specific experience or set of experiences. Uh, while growing up, that kind of puts you on the path towards working in the world of safari, be it guiding or or running a company.
0: Yeah, I look, I, I think you know I was very fortunate from a from a perspective of one from a very young age. I was taken I was taken under the wing by by a, a very old professional hunter down the name of Charlie Page in the southeastern lowveld of Zimbabwe, um, who really taught us about being in the bush as kids. Um, and like I say, I'm talking as a five, six year old all the way through my teen years. You know, who we spent many, many hours of our uh, free time and on weekends and, and school holidays within the bush. Uh, and mm-hmm. it, obviously, this this was this was back in in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. Um, so from a very young age, you know, having had the joy of of meeting a, a real solid, hardcore core bush. Orientated individual, he was able to teach us an enormous amount about being in the wild and surviving in the wild and behaving in the wild. Um, and obviously, from that learning, so much about not only the, the the wildlife, the different species, but obviously the habitat in which these species occurred. And and you know that, that sort of always gave me a deep love of of being out there in the bush. Yes, you know, from there, it sort of, you know, became. I, I want to say is, is the rest of my life is, has has really followed in parallel. And in the early 80s, um, you know, just after independence in Zimbabwe, we, you know, it was a case of it was a whole bunch of us young young uh, teenagers. Well, I mean, in our late teens at that stage, you know, we were 18, yeah. 19 years old. We sort of had figured out, okay, well, what do we do with our lives? Um, and yeah. I was very fortunate again to be with with another old friend of mine um who's also very really heavily involved in wildlife and in the bush and um, actually sort of it started off by, by accident where one of one of his friends who was a guide got sick with malaria and hmm. said, Well Keith, you, you actually you you you've spent all your life in the bush, you know how to do this. People really come and guide these people and take them yeah. out uh, in the Zambezi Valley. Yeah. And you know, off the basis of that, um, yeah, hence I started my guiding career. I mean, call it a fortuitous break, uh, on on the yeah. one hand. Having said that, you know, it was it was it was something that I, I naturally moved towards just because that's how I'd grown up with all my free time as as a as a kid. Um, yeah. and you know, one thing led to another and you know, I ended up getting my professional uh, hunters and guides license um Mm -hmm. and we moved on from there so i want to say it was it was more fortuitous than pre-planned
1: yeah sure yeah as you said you you grew up camping in the bush which i remember that astounded me when i had my first trip to zimbabwe with you which was amazing and i know that your wife uh, you and your wife will still do that what did your wife say the first time that you insisted she go camp with you out in the bush Uh,
0: look i I think again uh, I got lucky. Uh, I probably married uh, uh, above my station in life. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> my wife was had worked for a safari business. In fact, she worked for wilderness safaris long before I did.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah.
0: So, you know, from a point of view, if you ask her, she brought me into the business, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> in, into the wilderness safari side of the business. I was already in the business, but uh, in a different portion. I actually had my own, uh, own safari business. So, you know, from that perspective, uh, she she was very comfortable in the bush. The the rules certainly changed uh, w- when when we, when we had a, a kid. Uh, yeah. And you know I, I recall the first time taking my youngest son actually into the bush when he was you know, six weeks old in the, in the carry cot. And she was a lot less comfortable sitting around the fire at night with some hyenas boiling around. <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, our camping trips had to sort of change slightly. And you know, I recall <laughs> camping in, in one of the one of the really cool places in Wangi National Park at a campsite called Ingweshla. Um and you know we're a little pup tent for the kids and, and Maureen and I would would sleep on a on a on a uh, top on the ground next to the tent outside. And being, hmm. you know the people who know Engueshla will know that it's, it's one of the more favorite spots for for a decent uh, population of lions. <laughs> and they're having the lions patrolling and calling all around us all night certainly didn't endear me to my wife at that particular time <laughs> where she suggested that buy, buying a second tent for us was actually probably a reasonably good plan.
1: <laughs> and for people listening, and when Keith says a campsite, this is not what you think of as a campsite in the U.S., I'm assuming at least no, this is just a spot you decided to,
0: yes, to pitch your tent. Exactly. It's, it's a spot, in, it, you know, and, and, and all it had was an ablution block for a toilet and a shower, you know. So uh, that was it. So, having said that, you know, I mean, even to this day, I mean, the two of us and our families had so much joy uh, spending time in the bush. You know, be it in a in a proper in like a today's safari camp with the, with the yeah. the luxury that's there today, and also going to the the very simple camping side that you know where we where we started life and where we grew up from.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, before you met your wife. I, you were a guide as you said and then you know you steadily rose up to now to now lead wilderness which is an amazing story but I wonder if you could give people a sense for some of the demands of your job and maybe you can explain what a typical pre-pandemic week was like for you at, as CEO
0: I think from a you know obviously the worlds changed so dramatically in the in the last year in in you know, in a normal in a normal year uh, I mean the first thing and, and foremost thing is we we are incredibly fortunate to have an incredible team of people that work with us. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we would never have achieved everything we've achieved as a business and as a group of like-minded individuals in conservation without obviously an incredibly a good, solid team behind us. Um, right. In in each country, so you know, from that perspective, is is uh, leveraging off a solid group of people. Yeah. You know, be it in the sales function side of it and the logistics side of it. And I, I think what people really don't know is how heavy the logistics actually are in creating a world class yeah. safari, you know, behind this behind the curtain, as, as you as you as you would say. Um, sure. And, you know, it's not only it's making sure that the, the food is there, making sure the fresh vegetables are there. And, you know, sometimes your fresh vegetables on a weekly basis are are moving a thousand miles to get to a destination to ensure that you have a fresh piece of salad or Uh lettuce on your plate. Um, And then obviously the logistics of moving people around on on a, on a day-to-day basis and little airplanes arriving off a variety of flights from different destinations. There's an enormous amount of logistics and organizing. I mean, I think because you know, there's a few key things that make for a good safari and, you know, the first thing is making sure that a person's met at the airport on their arrival in in you know in some of these off-the-beaten-track off, off the places in Africa. Um, yep. it, it, it's still, you know, considering a booking, you know, potentially, you know, prior to COVID was taking place, the actual booking took place, you know, sometimes 18 months to a year in advance. Sure. Um, and making sure that that person's names in a diary on a time and on what flight they're actually arriving on, yeah, that level of detail is, is obviously immense when you, you're moving sort of 45,000 passengers a year through through the back ends of Africa. Yeah. Um, so no small you know, challenge. Keeping the train moving in the right direction all the time and, and, and all the moving parts, you know, obviously from a point of view, you know, in our business, we, we're dealing on a day-to-day basis with 47 different cultures. Um, and, and the, the learnings of, of how to do business in, in each of these countries. And, you know, in, in some instances, you know, some of the countries might have five or six different cultures within them and getting the best out of people from, and whilst respecting the different cultures is, is it, is an enormous task that's undertaken by, by a large group of people in essence, but, but making sure that, you know, one that There are people on the ground, get all the support they need at every level. Uh, And obviously there's changing circumstances. And, you know, on a day-to-day basis, life happens in reality. um, And Mm -hmm. and you still got to – there's always something that's popping up. And, you know, sometimes it's as small as an aircraft didn't leave and this passenger stranded because an an aircraft, you know, being a commercial aircraft, either broke down or didn't leave or was delayed and now people have missed their onward flights yeah there, there was seldomly a day that went by when those kind of issues that outside of your day-to-day control happened yeah um yep and it, you know it's obviously sorting those kind of events out and making sure that the, the customer is being looked after and making sure that their way home or their way in for that matter because it also happens on the way in um yeah. and you know even on the way in i mean there's you know there's times when you, you might arrive, but your luggage doesn't. And obviously people are quite keen to get their luggage and making sure that yeah. their luggage follows behind them right. as they go into the back end of the bush where there isn't there isn't uh, hourly or put in, instantaneous communications available to everybody. Yeah. So yeah, like I say, uh, there's a million challenges. It's, it's a never ending game in, in that sense. And you know, it's, it's a job that's seven days a week, 365 days of the year you know, 24 hours a day, I'm privileged to work with some really amazing people, uh, which obviously makes life a lot simpler.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: <clears throat> so on that basis, you know, it's, it's like I'd like to say, it's, it's, you know, I, I view myself as, as the cleaner. Uh, it's, yeah. it's like cleaning up again and, and, and busting down barriers or hurdles for uh, operational people um, to assist them in, in providing really world-class service.
1: Yeah, which you guys do a great job of. Um, it's been a tough year for the travel industry, obviously. Um, what are you optimistic about right now?
0: Yeah, I think in, in, the, in the last two months in particular, what I'm really optimistic about is you can actually see the mood of, of the traveler changing uh, as as more and more people are, are being vaccinated. Um, the, 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 the need to travel, I think, is, has gone up substantially. Uh, sure. and we see a substantial uh interest um and inquiries coming through as people are, are once they've been vaccinated are, are more confident to travel and i think yep. we we're, we're in a very fortunate position to to be able to say right okay this this is superb in the sense of, of you know 99% of our locations are are so far out in, in the in the wide open plains of africa um and without without big crowds of people so the, sure. the actual environment we operate in is is incredibly um perfect perfect for you know what's probably going to become uh the holiday destinations that are more in demand in the next 18 months than maybe previously so
1: yeah that's great okay no you know
0: and i think the airlines have definitely proved that you know with all the the, the the, the work that the airlines have done in their filtration, air filtration systems in the aircraft is it's not unsafe to trip to fly.
1: No, definitely not.
0: And, you know, we're seeing more and more of that. And, I mean, every day now, we're seeing more airlines reopening routes again. And, and that's all a positive sign. So I must say I'm, yeah. I'm certainly more optimistic than I was three months ago uh, that that we, we're on the road to recovery. It might be slow. Um, But we're on the road to recovery versus the other way around.
1: Yeah. And how how has the reopening been handled? I know, I mean, you guys operate in seven different countries, so it varies country by country. But are most of the countries open for safari or for for visitors right now?
0: Yes. All the the countries are actually open for visitors. Um, The complication is is really, is, is more on the way out. Is ensuring people have adequate time in a centre to get uh, a, a, a COVID uh, PCR test. test done, and that's that's you know I mean that's becoming more and more available and and it's happening on a on a let's put it a, a more free, easily attainable basis. You know, yeah. six months ago it would have taken 48 hours to get a result. Um, you know, today you can probably get a result in the same day. Um,
1: yeah, wow. In order nice.
0: for you to travel. So it's ensuring that there's time on 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 the way out of the country to get that PCR test to allow you to travel back to your home country. So and I and I, I think as that uh, technology advances and the, the 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 speed or rapid tests that are, are becoming more and more available around the world, again, yeah. that's just gonna get better and better and better. And rather than then we are we're where we were sitting six months ago versus where we're sitting today. So, yeah. like I say, all the countries are open, um, and we certainly see. I want to say we're already seeing some movement already of passengers travelling into into Africa, which is which is a really good sign. Yeah, great. So slow re-beginning and it, you know, let's let's hope it picks up pace. Yep.
1: Yeah. Kind of sh- switching gears a little bit. Let's talk about the camps. Something that surprised me on on my trip was how many little things are done to mitigate the natural challenges of operating in the environments you're in i mean for example i just thought it was kind of fascinating you've got these cages you put around the wheels of the planes when they have to sit on these runways to prevent the hyenas from eating them it's like i mean how do you learn these things um do you ever just go okay that's nature saying this isn't a spot for a camp you
0: know and there's suddenly will we say no uh, because of wildlife, would we say, no, we can't do it here. I, I think we'd, we'd always look at it in a case of what are the, the necessary things we need to do to mitigate the damage created by some some wildlife uh, sort of in unintentional consequences of living in, in prime wildlife areas. Um, right. So. I think, from a point of view, is I mean, obviously, we we're very careful making sure that when we build, we don't block off either a, a migratory route of wildlife or uh, the natural movement of wildlife. So, I mean, that uh-huh. that does play a role on where we do build and where we don't build. Um, yep. I think, from a point of view, is it's it's we accept that it's it's the cost of doing business. so you know, if you put it in that context, that uh, the elephants are going to break your boardwalks down and the hyenas <laughs> might eat the tires of your airplane uh, or bite the the tailplane of your airplane. Um you know for whatever reason they just feel like doing it. So <laughs> I think we we, we we take that in our stride as it's a case of, you know, we chosen to live in and amongst the wildlife and we need to respect that they that we're there because of them and we need mm-hmm. to respect their rules.
1: Yep. You mentioned at the beginning how you, you had kind of grown up hunting in the bush. Um and I know, I think a lot of people, when they think of hunting or, or poaching um, in Africa, you know, they, they immediately just think of of the big five. But I mean, there are, there are many other species that are hunted as well and, and responsibly. But that's not something that you've done for a while. And I wonder if there was like an inflection point for you uh, when you realized that you should not be hunting anymore.
0: There's no doubt there was a reflection point. And I mean, I can recall very clearly when that day hit. And I think it was when the governance of 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 really strictly controlled quotas um, and the science that was put behind in the, in, the, in the you know I'm talking about in the early 80s now when there was a lot of science uh, done behind the issuing of quotas and when mm-hmm. I, when I saw that starting to uh, fall apart um, and the governance of that fall apart the writing was on the wall very quickly to me that. This, this is something that I, I you know i couldn't live with anymore um yeah so yeah there, there was there was definitely a, a reflection point to me um you know and I, and I think from a point of view is is you know let's not worry about the the right or wrong but, you know the, the early days of africa were opened up by the hunting business the professional hunters of the early of the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s right a lot of these areas were discovered by those, those let's call it adventurers, uh-huh. and opened up, and access was was made by those people. So they certainly played a role in opening the back ends of Africa up, um, yeah. for which other, you know, I think we must pay tribute to. Yeah, And I think from a point of view, you know, am I very happy and satisfied that I hit that reflection point? And the answer is, is yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think from a point of view is how does life work? There's always a time in life where, you know, if we all look over our shoulders and and people in my age group and maybe older than me, you know, there was, in the early days there was an abundance um, where, you know, the world's changed and a lot of that's changed, not necessarily from hunting or from poaching for that matter, but just through the sheer growth and size of of human population in a lot of these areas, in a lot of these countries. We've got to learn how to manage this this, this amazingly valuable resource. And, you know, America itself, in North America, is, is quite a good continent to look at in reflection. I mean, there's there's more whitetail mm. deer in the US today than, than there ever was historically. Yeah, which you know, which means that people are putting a value to the protection of of conservation and wildlife. Um, uh-huh. Which you know, I I think that's a positive side. Uh, and there's certainly a lot sure. more people in, in the US today than there was you know 100 years ago so um, okay. and i think from a point of view is, is probably find that the key part is is that the world we live in now is is a lot more in tune to doing the right thing for yeah. for the world and doing the right thing from a from a species protection point from a from a habitat protection point and probably yeah. one of the key points, and, you know, we, we tend to always move first to the key species of what we need to look after, but uh-huh. th- there needs to be every bit as much effort put into the, the let's call it going on the offensive, on protecting the habitat and the landscape available to conservation and wildlife. Right, right. Yeah, because the two work hand in hand. You, you, you can't have uh, millions of animals with no habitat. Yeah. So, yeah you know, I think from a point of view is habitat protection is every bit as, as vital as 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 individual species protection. So, yep. and, you know, and that doesn't mean you can ignore one at the cost of the other. You, you actually, you need to have a clear understanding of, of both uh, and be working on the offensive for both of those causes.
1: Right. Keith, I do this segment on the show called Explain That Gram. Now, You're not uh, really a qualified social media individual. I just decided I think you'll be able to speak on this photo from the Wilderness account. It's a photo of one of the leopards at Mambo. I mean, the most amazing thing about these camps is there are no barriers, no fences. You are just at one with nature. And you've got this photo basically of a leopard just hanging out at the Mambo camp. And this isn't really a rare occurrence. And I know you've had a few run-ins with big cats. So I wonder if you could talk about some of those experiences.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first thing and foremost, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we're living in their turf and hence these camps aren't fenced off uh, to to keep the the wildlife outside of uh, the camp itself. Um, And obviously from a point of view, from a management perspective and, and a safety perspective, that means we need to be incredibly cautious with our customers and our guests um, in ensuring yep. their safety and well-being at all times. And, and our staff are very well attuned to that. It's, it's something we're like a broken record on. Is you, you can't ever let your guard down because it exists every day. Um, yeah. Uh, and obviously from a from a pure staff perspective and a pure individual's perspective is, you know, we're probably the worst defenders because it's so easy to get blasé and and you can never afford to um to get blase around, you know, animals uh that, that you know obviously are bigger, stronger and and than you are ever. And they yeah. and they're certainly a lot a lot faster than we are. So yeah. <laughs> you know, I think from a perspective of this is something we live with every day and, and I think it also it also increases the sense of adventure. You know, when you're lying in bed oh, at yeah. night and you're hearing the lions calling outside, um, and you know you're hearing the elephant's trumpet, and and beyond just sort of let's call it the big the big wildlife, it's also the the frogs calling and the crickets calling, and yeah. and there's obviously an amazing amount of night night birds, you know, be it yeah. um, be it the owls calling or be it um, nightjars calling, etc., and that all adds to the sense of adventure. Uh, and especially for people, as, you know, who've grown up and born and bred in cities, I mean, from from just hearing um, you know, the sounds of cars cars and sirens to hearing yeah. these most amazing, the beautiful noises at night. And, and the, you know, they also tell a story, you know, you've got jackals that will call, which is a warning call to say that there's a, they've seen a, a cat, and the cat might be a lion or a leopard. Mm, um, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of noises that mean something um, yeah. to, to people who obviously know what those noises actually are. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting talking to guests in the morning. You know, you know we heard this, we heard that. So, okay, well, that's what was happening. And, yeah. you know, so over, over a period of time, you know, it's, it's a great, I want to say it, it becomes something that customers actually start commenting on and saying, wow, I, you know. Yeah, thanks for telling us about that yesterday because we heard it last night and now we could sit there and lie there and imagine what was going on around outside.
1: So cool. I mean,
0: what has happened, which is very, very interesting during this COVID period is how the animals, there are actually more animals in the camp today than ever before. (laughs) And obviously that's simply because there's less human activity than prior years. Yeah, so you know, it's it's actually one of the things we're all commenting on. Um, you know, in my house in Victoria Falls, yeah, you know, literally a couple of mornings ago, I got sent a, a video from my housekeeper, yeah, you know, showing a, a herd of elephants outside my gate, um, <laughs> yeah, in in the middle of town in Victoria Falls. So you know, oh, wow. so obviously with with the sort of restrictions and of people moving around during COVID. It's, it's it's really been fascinating to watch the wildlife take over again. Um, yeah. And it's certainly something that I'm, I'm hoping that sort of stays that way because it's like a return to nature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Maybe this has happened multiple times, but could you tell the story of, of when you kind of came face to face with the lion when you were returning to your... Your your room at, at Mambo. Yeah, I mean,
0: obviously, every time you escape, it's always a very funny story. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and I, I remember sort of after dinner, we had a couple of drinks around the fire after dinner with some some of our guests, and I was I was merely walking down the boardwalk back to 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 my room, um, and there were four lightesses walking down the boardwalk, and uh, <laughs> and it was like a six foot jump to get off the boardwalk, so I wasn't really keen to jump off the boardwalk. And the yeah. lionesses certainly didn't look like they were about to jump off the boardwalk. Um, <laughs> and fortunately, it was, it was a, a, a turn-off, and it was a boardwalk to one of the, the guest rooms. So anyway, I, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll duck down this this uh, side boardwalk to to the door, and hopefully the lions would just walk past. Anyway, yeah, unfortunately, obviously, the lions... They they saw me easily. They they see it you know, so well at night. And they definitely <laughs> yeah. saw me. I was trying to cower into the corner of the door. Uh, and this one lady walked down the boardwalk, and as she got closer and closer, I figured well, my options were sort of getting uh, less and less as, as the moments went on. And I was yeah. I sort of was quietly knocking on the door, and I'll never forget the the, the guest said to me, "Who's that?" And I said, "This is Keith. I'm coming in." There's a line outside, and sorry, I promise you, I'm, I'm just going to hide behind the door. Don't worry. <laughs> you know Whether you like it or not, I'm coming again. So, and anyway, yeah. I dived into the room, and I was looking through the window, and anyway, the light eventually turned around and walked off, and carried on back down the boardwalk, and I said, and I to say to the guest, oops, oh, sorry about that. Excuse me. Get back outside and walk back to my room. Man. So it That's it good. was particularly funny. The, the good thing is that the guest saw the, saw the, saw the humor in it. Said,
1: yeah. I would like to think most of your guests would but yeah, that's an amazing story. Do you have a favorite camp?
0: You know it's actually I mean I get asked this question uh, uh, really a lot and and, and the, the short answer is is no. Um I, sure. I, I too what what is what is uh, over the years I mean if you'd asked me this question 25 years ago I probably would have given you a favorite spot. But mm-hmm. what I have grown to really appreciate is that you know, at, at certain times of the years, I'd go to certain areas to see certain ex- something, that, some experience that just yeah. sort of caught my fancy on that particular weekend or yeah. time of yeah. my life. I mean, so if I wanted to spend a lot of time with lion, I'd go to certain areas at different times of the years. And if I wanted to see, be with leopard, I'd go to other areas at other times of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if I wanted to really sort of world class. Elephant experiences in large numbers is you know there's a couple of places that I'd go to, and then if I really wanted to have a really like cool on foot uh, experience with elephant, I'd go to other areas. Um, yeah. So and you know if I wanted to be with wild dogs or something like that, I'd go to other areas. So yeah. You know I sort of moved off saying what where's my favourite spots in the world into saying well you know whenever I've got some time that I can go and spend with my wife or my friends in the bush you know what are we looking at trying to do what would be and where would we go to achieve that um right so and i think that's really when when you're thinking about travel understanding that you know wildlife is in the areas we operate i mean the joys of the areas we operate and they're so big and vast that there is movement from month to month from season to season um and there's there's a wide variety of of exceptional experiences and that's and that's where you know, reaching out to us or your travel advisor to get the right information at the right time of year um, is really important.
1: Yeah, I remember when we were in Zimbabwe, you said you can build anything with a checkbook, but it's about curating an experience. And some of uh, some of the most unique experiences that the wilderness camps offer, you know, I know you you can trek with the gorillas in, in Rwanda. I was able to see the elephant collaring in Zimbabwe. You can go for a, a walking safaris. Um, I mean, what are what are some of the kind what are the kinds of experiences that you get excited to build or, or
0: offer that really blow guests away? I, I think anything that that's truly wild is, is, is what excites me about building an experience. Is, yeah. So, you know, in the first instance, we never, ever worry about what are we going to build? So that's that's definitely the last thing in our lists. Um, you
1: mean like physically, like yeah, the structure?
0: Physically, the structure we never, yeah. ever in the first uh, three or four or six months of planning, do we ever worry about what are we going to build? Um, we worry right. a lot more about what is the experience going to be in, in the form of, of wildlife and the experiential value. So in yeah. in the first, in our very first thoughts, is always built, building the experience and what are we going to do on the experiential side? Um, and you know wilderness has built its reputation and built its name on in, in a niche for itself in the sense of we concentrate really hard so you know we use a lot of our guides that are real experts in in um in in habitat and and wildlife uh and conservation so using that as the as the foundation you know that is is you know and the way i look at it as, as an expert guide, I mean I'm still a qualified guide today, I mean I still got my license today, is you know oh, cool. Is is a fact of, you know, when I'm going out to, you know, you and I traveled last year to a couple of places, you know, and and, and you saw that, to me it's about does this really make me happy from a from a wildlife experiential point of view? Would I pay mm-hmm. money to come to this area um to be able to witness uh wildlife in their natural habitat? Yeah, and if the answer yeah. to that is yes, and yes, and yes, and can I build off that experiential value in the form of the community and the cultural side of it, you know that also plays a role. Uh, and I mean, we saw that in Belize, you know, from the the, the Maya ruins to to the rainforest, yeah. um, you know, the canoeing in in the caves.
1: You have enough diversity of experience.
0: Yeah, it, I've got enough drivers to build an experience, and only post that will I worry about what we build. Uh, and then sure. from there we're gonna reach out to our customers. We're gonna work out, you know, what sort of what sort of price range would suit which customers coming from which destinations. And then from there, we'll only uh, only after that will we worry about what we might build.
1: Right. You're you mentioned this. The, your guides. I mean, they're incredible. Um, and, and by the time someone is guiding guests, what kind of schooling and experience have they undertaken? To I mean, to be able to. When we went for that walk, we, we did like a two hour walk from from uh, little Rekomichi to the airstrip in Zimbabwe, walked about, I don't know, maybe two miles through the bush, saw some elephants, saw some some buffalo, it was incredible. And, you know, we were accompanied by two two guides and, and yourself, of course. So what what's required of them to be able to bring guests into that environment safely?
0: Firstly each country's got their own sort of at least called a guiding set of qualifications. So they're all slightly different. But the reality of the situation is, is all guides will start off as an apprentice guide, and normally, mm-hmm. normally apprentice to a fully licensed guide. From that perspective, you know they'll go through a whole bunch of schooling, um, both uh, practical schooling in the bush uh, and theoretical schooling. You know that that they need to learn from a you know learning the all the birds and and the habitat, the bushes and trees and and uh, birds, et cetera. So, you know, obviously there, there's some book learning and there's also obviously being out in the wild to get the the true on the ground experiential value uh, or, yeah. or requirements that they'll need to successfully take customers out in the future from a perspective of, you know, making sure that they can handle the, the safety of, of their customers is paramount. Um, yep. and, and that you only ever going to learn from a practical experiential point of view so in the yeah. in the whole learning phase, when as apprentices, we'll spend an awful lot of time making sure our guards have walked people up to lions or walked people up to elephants. Actually, and put, <laughs> and put them in in some pretty delicate situations. And you know, yeah. obviously, making sure that they can manage their way safely out with a group of people is is is, is critical. Uh, safety, yeah. is, is, you know, always ranks number one. You know, generally, you're looking. From from start to potentially getting your full guides licenses around around four years in some areas five years um, worth of 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 schooling um, call it mm-hmm. schooling for want of a better word um, and you know and and literally at that stage it's just the beginning um, mm-hmm. you know I think from a point of view is is you know if you if you rewind to to you know let's say the early eighties when when Photographic stories were just really starting to swing into gear. Um, yeah. You know, you the the people that were out there doing it had literally grown up in the bush. You know, either grown up on large, large, large ranches, farms, um, so their whole life had been in the bush. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, today we're getting a lot more youngsters that are coming out of either university and thinking that wildlife and conservation is 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 actually a field that they want to get into irrespective of what they might have studied. And obviously there's a lot of people that either study zoology or biology at, at university. And this mm-hmm. is sort of a natural uh, progression. Um And I think probably, I think one of the sort of key points is now is that professional guiding in, in, in the world today is seen as, as, as a really, really good career opportunity yeah. for many people around the world. That's really, I think, Firstly, it pleases me no end. I mean, I remember starting, you know, Zimbabwe's well-renowned worldwide, and it's it's renowned worldwide, is the fact that um, they've probably got the strictest set of examinations and curriculums for professional guides. Uh When I moved from Zimbabwe to Botswana in, in early 2000, what I did do is start a school in Botswana and we took the very best of the Zimbabwean system and, and the South African system, which is a system called Spagaza, which is, it's a curriculum. Mm-hmm. We, we, we sort of put together our own, our own curriculum as a company and built a guiding school in the bush to start helping the, our guides in Botswana actually become, one, a lot more professional and, two, give them a lot better chance and, and, and speed up the process of their learning. Uh, and it's paid yep. huge dividends over all the years. And you know, I recall in the early two thousands. I mean, at that stage, we probably had, we probably had about eighty expatriate guides in the country. I mean, today uh-huh. we today we've got one, um, and the rest are all hmm. local citizen guides. And and that's very important to me as an individual, but also to our business. Is you know when we yeah. go into these countries as training local citizens to be able to. Uh, to be able to really provide a world-class safe experience is is paramount. So I think it, there'll be very few people in the wildlife industry who won't tell you that at the end of the day, if you're booking a safari, please understand that it's not so much about the luxury of the lodge on the one hand, it's about the luxury of having a really seriously great guide host uh, you yeah. because uh, that's going to make or break your safari.
1: Yeah. I remember when, when we were in Zimbabwe, I had hopped out of our truck to take some photos of some elephants that were kind of coming towards us with our guide, uh, Niyangi. And um, he and I had laid down at the front of the, of the truck to shoot these photos and the elephants were coming towards us. And, you know, they're definitely getting closer and closer and I'm starting to feel more and more uncomfortable. But just having him, first of all, next to me, but seeing his calmness and his composure, you know, gave me complete confidence that uh, that we would be fine. And of course, you probably remember that elephant walked walked up three to four meters away, ten yeah. to 20, you know, <laughs> ten to twelve feet. <laughs> yeah, and we're laying there on the ground. It's pretty amazing. Just there, the sixth sense for for communicating with animals. But you know, it's, and it's obviously learned through a ton of experience. Um, and y- you've you've had some wild close calls. You know, I, I remember a story about having to chase after a friend who was kind of being dragged off by a lion. But what do you attribute the the fact that you're still breathing in, in one piece to? Because as far as I can tell, you've run into just about every animal there is to run into in the bush.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I think I would say that in my youth, uh, I, I had some lucky escapes and it was put it down to luck and not skill. You know? <laughs> but over the years, you, you know, you and, and obviously the, the, the more you're out there, you, you learn behavioral patterns of wildlife um, mm-hmm. and actually seeing the body language of the animals themselves. Um, and you can really quite quickly pick up either a sense of aggression or, or, or a sense of peacefulness um, yeah. at, at let's yeah, I mean, uh, and it's, pretty, it's, it's also, it's very similar in the same thing with humans. It's, it's, where's that, that comfort zone, you know, when you're getting in somebody's face, you know, when, when is mm-hmm. it comfortable and when does it become uncomfortable? And you, you can actually see it in animals' behavior. You know, you can see it with dogs for that matter, you know, and, for, and in particular cats are very easy to read. And, uh, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's learning to respect when you see those signs of, of an animal becoming uncomfortable is actually giving ground. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that sign of respect of, of giving ground, not, not in the sense of giving ground in the, and run away, It's a case of of keeping a respectful distance from the animal when you see that they're uncomfortable. And they'll let you know when they're uncomfortable most of the time. I mean, I'm talking about 99% of the time. Yeah. And at that time, you need to back off. If you back off a little bit, you know, when I say back off, I'm talking, you know, you give two or three meters, Mm -hmm. and quite often you'll find that the animal instantaneously gives itself one or two meters, and then you sort of step back another two or three meters, and then – then you'll find yeah. that they settle down into their comfort zone and, and they'll probably carry on either walking past or grazing or doing what they were doing you know, half an hour ago. So yeah. it's, it, it, it's, it is all about respect. Um, and obviously having the, the, the knowledge of, of watching uh, that behavioral change is is, is mm. critical, cool. And that's, that's what a good guy is going to be able to show you. And obviously listening to your gut is obviously quite critical at that stage is you know knowing when 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 to to back off and knowing when you can actually move a little bit closer should you do that you know
1: can you think of a specific time when you should have listened to your gut in that respect but you you didn't and either paid the price or almost paid the price for it
0: I mean there's definitely no doubt that in my youth I, I certainly probably I definitely pushed the boundary a couple of times when I shouldn't have done uh, <laughs> and, and we're pretty lucky that the animal and 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 myself and whoever I happen to be with managed to escape from that particular situation. So, you know, <laughs> and and look, I mean, if I look over my shoulder, you'll say that's this stupidity of youth. Uh, <laughs> that's probably the only way to really describe it is the stupidity of youth, yeah. where you you try to do things that are exciting, so you 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 test the boundary or you overstep the boundary. And mm-hmm. I think that you know the other big reflection time in life now is the preservation of the animal's life is, is far more critical than you pushing the boundary just to see something exciting. So, yeah, um, you know, so from that perspective, again, it boils down to respect. And, you know, quite often, I mean, I, I know the guides as, as a whole, whenever an incident does take place, and unfortunately they do take place from time to time, sure. is, is there's certainly, you know, a, a great deal of thought and talking that goes in amongst the guiding fraternity is, okay, what happened? And did we make a mistake? Um, yeah. and I think how do we learn from this and how do we learn from, from those mistakes? Um, and you know, and look, and, and you've also got to accept that. Don't forget that, you know, an animal can have something as, as, as simple as toothache and just be angry. Um, yeah, that happens. And, you know, quite often, you know, especially with things like elephant, that where they've broken a tusk and their their nerves, the, the nerve of their tusk is hanging out and obviously the, the pain would be unbearable. Yeah. Um. And that creates events and animals getting burnt in bushfires, that creates events. So there's always the abnormal. Um, yeah. And, you know, that, that's a different set of circumstances. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you know, at times, that's why I say sometimes when you're doing these postmortems on, on on events that have happened, and the first thing you look at is, did we make any mistakes? And if so, mm-hmm. what can we learn from it?
1: Sure. Well, switching gears here, I know one of the most important pillars of the wilderness business is community. Um, can you talk about the impact that the camps have on on local communities that they're in and the African economy as a whole?
0: Yes, uh, there's no doubt. I mean, the, the the communities that live on the on the on the on the surrounding areas of these wild areas. It's really critical to understand that they, they, they need to be a partner in, in the protection of the area to, to reap the, the long-term benefits of that area. And, and learning to make sure that whatever we're doing is, is in tune to, to what that, those communities want to do for themselves. I mean yeah. there, there's obvious benefits in in the form of job creation and and following along with job creation is wealth creation in the form of be it getting a a a a, a well uh with pump with sort of pumpable water uh, fresh water cuz you know clean water yeah. is is is, right. a, is a precious commodity in the back ends of Africa um yeah and following along behind that generally comes sort of uh, facilities, medical facilities in the form of clinics and midwives, um, and and yeah. better access. So uh, you know, it's, it's the the list is is endless. You know, it's, and it's not just necessarily being at uh, chef training or housekeeper training or guide training. So moving beyond the the job creation side is the ancillary um, industries that are built alongside. Because you know, we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need Uh Machinery operators, we need pilots. So the the whole host of let's call it second line industrial jobs that are created because of the tourism industry is is a big contributor to the GDP of the country. Yeah, Um, and you know what's been fascinating over the last sort of ten or fifteen years is the continual climb in GDP contribution of tourism to the world at, at, at large and in particular it's got it's got massive influence in the third world uh, and and you know if even if you look at the us and, and europe in, in in this last year of covid actually it plays a significant role in the first world too so this isn't isolated yeah. to the third world um so to speak this is this is a worldwide uh, phenomenon um and travel is 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 really the big the big thing i mean uh, we've seen it in the youth of today, and you know I'm, I, I still do it. And, and don't don't take this the wrong way. As, you know, I view the millennial <laughs> as the youth. Uh, yep. When you think about it, they're now in their thirties. Yeah. So from that perspective, that group of of individuals definitely got a much greater respect and and feeling around the climate, the their contribution to the world at large, but also. The, the big shift, and it's such a positive shift for, for for tourism and conservation in the same breath, as experiential value to that group of individuals has certainly now starting to outweigh material uh, wealth. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're seeing people spend, the younger people spend a lot more on experiential value than, for instance, buying a fancy car. Yeah. Um, you know, so... And I, I think that's such a positive change for the world of 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 of, of conservation uh, and, and habitat protection, and for the world at large. Yeah, and that really, really excites me. I mean, that to me is the biggest opportunity value we've ever had in this industry.
1: I remember. I think you had quoted a stat that you know one of your employees supports up to ten people in the in either their family or or local economy. So as a result of all the people you employ, you know, it really has a, a huge impact and. And if I remember correctly, there was one village in Rwanda where you guys employed like sixty percent of <laughs> of of everyone that lived there.
0: Absolutely, and you know what? It's, it's been really fun. I mean, since we developed uh, Basati Lodge in Rwanda, which is the boundary of Volcanoes National Park, to see the gorillas is is watching how two or three villages you actually can see the wealth creation growing as as people have gone from tin huts to. Uh, brick-and-mortar houses um, and and see the significant change in in wealth creation by simply because we built a lodge in the facility and employed a decent chunk of of a couple of villages' uh, working population. Yeah. And I think it also shows you because of the micro-industry that's created alongside that. I mean, I I know a couple of those villages – you know, we bought a couple of sewing machines and, and, and started up a micro industry for for a group of women there that made all our staff uniforms. Um, yeah. And, you know, this this group of ladies have, have created a really cool little business now. I mean, apart from making all of our staff uniforms for everybody we employ in, in the country, you know, are now selling to to third party shops and and. They've got they you know, they're starting to, to grow their little industry. And watching, let's say that uh, you know, we enabled it to happen, it makes me incredibly proud of of one, their individual efforts to make a success of it. But two, you know, when I look at my staff and knowing the role that some of our staff played in 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 helping their let's put it those initial barriers and knock those initial barriers down, it's it's really it, you know. It really is something you can be proud of. And it yeah, really makes me very absolutely. proud to, to see, to actually physically see the the actual benefit of that, you know, and over a, a you know, a, a relatively short period of time, I'm that's only sort yeah. of six or seven years old, you know, hopefully we can help more and more people create opportunity.
1: Yeah. I, I would say what tends to unify all the guests of the show is that at some, at some level, they're all very, very frequent flyers, frequent travelers. I remember that you said you fill that you could fill a passport in a uh, in a couple months because you have to fly through, you know, one or two countries to get uh, to somewhere else in Africa. Is it was that right that it was just a couple months?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was burning a passport every six months—a forty-eight page passport uh, every six months. <laughs> and, and, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of countries I visit where every every entry is is a full page of a passport. So. Uh, oh yeah I, I was definitely clocking up the the air miles moving around pre covid um you know it, well, obviously it's, it's two things is one visiting a, a large number of camps so we had 50 camps over seven different countries you Yeah. trying to trying to visit every camp every year in all the different countries uh um, yeah. you need you needed to move around quite a lot you know apart from obviously going to new areas looking for expansion opportunities uh and new countries and and the visas and the space it takes up with your passport um <laughs> so you know from a perspective is you know generally i'm on the road for about 240 days of the year um yeah, on a normal wow. year um and you know uh, they, they seldomly am i doing trips when i'm not going through at least three or four countries you know or in, in, a, in the at space of a, of a week wow you know i think from a perspective of uh, yeah, having, having the ability to renew a passport quickly was was really quite important for me. Uh, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been a bit strange this past year. It's, yeah. Only only traveling yeah, twice in, in the in the course of twelve months is like I'm not sure. With I, I don't know if I felt human or or normal anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, it must have been a hell of a change. Like, are there any um I suppose go to uh, tips or or like routines that you you follow for Trying to have smooth travel
0: when you when you were flying so much. Obviously, you learn to travel really light. Um, you know, you sort of work out very quickly: is is is, is don't overpack. Um, Roll mm-hmm. on, on luggage always works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you don't have time. Uh, you know. In fact, I'd say that my biggest bugbear when I was traveling that much was always laundry. Getting laundry done was uh, too, was always my, my my single biggest nightmare. Um, yeah, you know, so. Yeah, from a perspective of traveling light uh, and and you know, understanding the where you were traveling to, and you know, obviously different countries. You know, generally speaking, in Africa, if you've got an hour and a half, you can you can you can commute to, or you can change aircraft to fly to another country because quite often you've got to go through yeah. one country to get to the next country. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and in fact, and it was actually the the hottest time I had is connecting was always in the US. <laughs> Um, you know, as a a foreigner coming to the US, the the cues getting to immigration were were always terrifying. Uh, So there were certainly, there were certain (laughs) airports that I would never enter into America, you know, Miami being the leader of the pack. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, knowing that if I came into either JFK or, in fact, if I came into the West Coast, into Seattle or San Francisco or, or San Diego, um, I could get through immigration pretty quickly and and get into onto sure. the next plane. Um, yeah, but you know if I hit LAX or I hit uh, Miami or sometimes Atlanta, yeah, you know, sometimes you know three hour connection wasn't long enough, and I missed I missed a <laughs> lot of flights. after oh, that. oh
1: boy, So you fly a lot of uh, international airlines, and I wonder which airlines you think are doing an amazing job right now.
0: Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to travel most of the major airlines. You know. Um, in the economy or business class, you know, regularly. Uh, I mean, there's no yeah. doubt that the two the two stand up airlines by far is Qatar and Singapore Airlines. I mean, by far, they're yeah, literally yeah. miles apart, uh, miles apart from everybody else. Uh, I mean, that's hmm. not to say there's not a few other decent ones. You know, maybe the last eighteen months prior to COVID, there certainly was an uptick in the in the service levels of of the American airlines before that. I mean, I would always never fly long haul with an American airline. I just wouldn't do it. Uh, the, yeah. serv- the service yep. was so terrible. Um. Right. And it's nice to see in the last eighteen months prior to COVID that they certainly tried a little bit harder to back their service up. Um yeah. you know, so And now that
1: United's flying to Cape Town, have you taken that flight?
0: No, unfortunately it, it, it never it never got to start because of COVID. So, no, I haven't taken. I haven't taken that flight, but I mean, I flew long haul to Hong Kong on American last year. And that was that was not last year. Actually, yeah, it was actually last year in January. I was coming. I was coming back from Indonesia, and I flew from Hong Kong to uh, LA on American. Yeah, um, and that was that was actually very good. Um, huh? You know, so I mean, it's nice to see those those kind of things picking up. I mean, there's no doubt. Like I say, is is there, I I've certainly got a preference when I fly. Yeah. And like I said, it's, it's, it's really hard-pressed to beat Qatar and, and Singapore Airlines. Uh, if, yeah. if they fly in there, you more than likely will find me on those one of those two airlines.
1: <laughs> no wonder. Keith, when you think back on you know all the guests that you've had, all the places you've been, and of course your incredible upbringing through, through guiding now to running this company, what impact has travel had on you and what impact do you believe it has on the world?
0: I mean, first and foremost, I think the best education that I was ever able to get was meeting the most incredible people as customers. I've been around long enough where it was seldomly a leader in, the, in a Fortune 500 company that hadn't been on holiday with us. And I'm obviously a, a wide variety of people from different skill sets and sitting around the fire listening to their stories and their learnings. I took that as, as an amazing education for myself, Yeah, just listening to yeah, I mean, literally people from all walks of life, from all around the world, from so many different cultures. I, I would say that that was far better than any schooling career I ever had in the form of education. And I've made some remarkable friends. I mean, I literally, you know, this weekend before last, I spent with a friend of mine that I guided 35 years ago in Africa. You know, mm. he obviously traveled, him and his wife traveled out with me to Africa I mean, I know about 25 or 28 times over the past yeah. 35 years. So the number of friends that I've made that I've met on safari around the world has given me the most amazing, diverse opportunity um, that you could ever ask for. Yeah. Obviously, because you know we've been around for a long time, you know, what, what are those customer values uh, brought to the planet and conservation as a whole? I mean, there's yeah. an awful lot of those customers that have traveled with us you know, 20 times, 30 times, and there'd been, there been some that have traveled 35 or 40 times with us. Wow. If you if you put it in perspective, is their dollars uh, in reality, their dollars um, have helped us build something that protects over 6 million acres of land um, and wow. employ 2,800 people in, in the back ends of Africa. So, you know, when I, look at all of that in the sense of what has that given back to the planet it's enormous yeah it really has you know it's protected an awful lot of wildlife it's given thousands of people the opportunity to find employment uh, it's paid yeah. huge amounts of taxes over the years to all the countries we operate in <laughs> um, yeah. and that's come from the customer dollar so i think our customers should be incredibly proud of their contribution to what people like us do for a living And we must never forget that that contribution is is the key part of wildlife and the planet surviving tomorrow.
1: That's Keith Vincent. You can't find him on social media, but if you stay at one of his camps, you may find him hiding from a loitering lion in the entryway of your tent. If you enjoyed the first season of the show, it would be especially amazing if you could drop it a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, and it would mean the world to me if you'd share it with someone who might find it interesting. Thanks to those who have already done so, but if you ever have any questions about the show or travel in general, feel free to reach out to me on social with any questions or comments. Once again, I'm your host, Ian Grimis signing off from season one of Up in the Air and wishing you smooth travels as always. Peace.